We're going to be starting Mark, the book of Mark, a little uh, known of the Gospels. Um, But if you would, open up your copy of God's Word. We're going to be starting with Mark chapter 1. I'm going to read through uh, the first 15 verses. We're not going to spend a ton of time. We're going to give an introduction, and uh, we're going to wrap things up with some prayer and um, pray that the Lord ministers to you this morning. Before we do, let's uh, start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the church, the church abroad in in the Czech and in various places. We thank you for reminders this morning that the church exists far beyond the walls of this building, that there is a worldwide church that you are calling out people to yourself. Father, we thank you for the new life that we can look at and celebrate and rejoice in. And with joy and thanksgiving, offer them to You, Lord, in dedication. And Father, the reminder of that new life to us, that You offer new life to all who would come to You. And so Father, we we thank You, we praise You, we worship You, we offer You glory and honor and praise. And Father, I pray that as we dive into Your Word a little this morning, that You would just minister to our hearts that You would speak truth to us, that we might be challenged and edified and equipped to walk into a dark world that needs Jesus. We thank You, we praise You in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 1. If you have been here before, you know the that what we want to do is we want to stand as we read through this to give preeminence to the Word, to make sure we kind of just separate that this is the Word of God. So, Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 1, says, "...the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight." John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance of the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to Him and were being baptized by Him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes He who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was tempted in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Please be seated. 
the Gospel according to Mark. Just kind of want to open it up with a little bit of an intro and, and, and walk through a couple of things here. Um, Mark was probably the first of the Gospel accounts recorded, written around 60, 63 A.D. Uh, it's very different than the other three Gospels. It was... Uh, Written, tradition holds that it was written by John Mark, and you've probably read John Mark, it might sound familiar. He was the guy that was traveling with Paul and Barnabas when they got into a dispute because John Mark kind of abandoned their first missionary journey, and on the second missionary journey, Barnabas, who by the way was um, uh, John Mark's uncle, uh, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with him on the second one, and Paul had a dispute there, and the two parted ways. That's kind of some background on John Mark. He eventually, though, reconciled with Paul, as you'll read later on in, uh, I think, his epistle to Timothy. He said, make sure you send John Mark to me because he has great benefit to me. Uh, it is believed that he was a disciple of Peter. And that's going to be important because as you read through the Gospel of Mark, you'll find that in it is most likely the Gospel according to Peter written by John Mark. And so there's things that come out of it that you see the voice kind of Peter. When you think of Peter, you think of a man who was blunt and bold and a man of action. And that is the reality of the Gospel of Mark. It is a book filled with... Uh, uh, action and deeds and it's going to become an important theme as we walk through the gospel of mark because it really focuses on one important actually two important themes the first part of the theme of the book of mark is that jesus is the christ the son of god and then it all hinges at one verse in mark chapter 10 verse 45 the whole book transforms so in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, you have this incredible verse that says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to offer His life as a ransom for many. So the book changes from the truth of Jesus being the Son of God to the sacrifice that Jesus is going to do for His people. And so when you think broad term, a theme for the whole book, it is that Jesus Christ is the King and because of His great love, came down to offer Himself as a sacrifice. And much of the book is, is written about the deeds and the works that Jesus did. Okay? Uh, the book has those two themes. Jesus is the King and He came to serve. It all hinges on Mark 10.45. It's written primarily for a Roman audience. We can tell that based on the internal evidence of the book. Um, very little Old Testament quotations. Um, Mark, throughout the book, oftentimes has to explain Jewish uh, customs and traditions. He explains Palestinian uh, settings. He explains the seasons. He explains things that aren't described in the other Gospel accounts. Um, he ignores the Mosaic Law for the most part. And again, much of the book is focused on the deeds of Jesus. A couple of really fascinating things, and I'm going to jump into the text. Uh, again, it was written around A.D. 60. 
it heavily influenced Matthew and Luke's accounts. Most people believe that Matthew used and referenced 90% of the book of Mark in his gospel account. And then lastly, I found this fascinating. Of the 678 verses that are in Mark's gospel, 285 of them in whole or in part contain the actual words of Jesus. Like I said, it's, it's a lot of focus on the deeds, and there's a, a couple of key words that Mark uses over and over again, and the main thrust of them is urgency. Urgency. Immediately, you'll find that word used over and over and over again. And so we jump into the text with that kind of context as a backdrop of, of why it was written. So you look at the different gospel accounts, Matthew written to, to establish the, the relationship of Jesus as king. Um, you have uh, uh, Luke who details so many things to establish for us the reality of Jesus being uh, the Son of Man. You have John who, who, who is all about theology and the, the, the theology of Jesus. And I find it interesting that each one of those impacts the start of their gospel accounts. And so Mark starts with a very brief introduction, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I think in that first verse is a very important element that is going to carry out through the entire book of Mark. He wants to establish the King, the Messiah, Jesus. And in this 15 verses, I think there are three things that give us affirmation of who Jesus is, that He isn't just some fly-by-night a popular speaker that's stepping onto the stage, but he is the Son of God. And so it starts out, and I said there are three affirmations. First of all, we have a messenger, right? John the Baptist. So Mark starts out and he says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A herald sent forth to declare the arrival of the king. You ever watch uh, the movies where it has the king coming in and they've got those great trumpeters out there proclaiming, make way for the king, make way for the king. That is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is not an ordinary guy. We're kind of told a little details about him. And, and he's a fascinating guy. I think John very quickly realized that his calling was not to be another priest in a country where religion was dead but to be a prophet like Elijah who would declare the arrival of the king. A very different ministry. And so he would go out and he would declare, here comes the king. And he makes two statements in that. He says, here comes the king. And the second one, which I find fascinating, one of the most challenging things for a person in ministry. He declares, not just here comes the king, but he is greater than I. So oftentimes, in our selfish, self-centered nature, we want to get out and declare, I am the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I am the one who is doing this work. And I am accomplishing this. And so it's very tempting, and it's a person in ministry, to throw up all the statistics of what we have accomplished as a church, or what we are doing in our, in our missions work, or whatever we are accomplishing with our budget, and all these things. And here we have the great example of John the Baptist, who, who said, I don't need the fancy clothes, the fancy food. He ate bugs sautéed with honey 
He wore a camel's hair clothes and a belt. And I find it interesting, in today's day and age, what do we do when we want to uh, get people? We throw great events. I thought it was interesting. One of the, the, the guys came into church this morning and, and looked around and noticed a lot of visitors and said, are we giving something away for free today? <laughs> John didn't do a big tent revival. He went out into the wilderness, and the people came to him. Imagine ministry where we didn't have to go and, and throw some big event, but rather we proclaim the truth and people come. And John's message ultimately, and, and we learn from John chapter 3, one of the hard verses in ministry, he must increase, meaning Jesus must increase and I must decrease. It's hard because of the sinful, selfish nature, but the reality is the more we come to the realization of that truth, the great freedom there is. That when we elevate Jesus and we make it less about me, what a great thing it is. But he's doing it because he's a messenger, and he's a messenger for the king. And what a ministry John had, and it is a ministry that we should have, and as I meditated on that this week, that his ministry, John's role was to go out and declare, make straight the paths, make the, the way uh, uh, easy, for the king is coming. And, and I thought about that, and as I began to think about that, and how that applies to my own life, is our ministry is to proclaim the king and to remove the hindrances from people to get to Jesus. And so here we have the messenger coming out and saying, He's coming, He's the King, He's the Son of God. Make way. Go ahead and remove the obstacles. And how oftentimes do we as Christians walk around and put hindrances in front of people from coming to Jesus? Through various actions, through various words, maybe unintentional. And so we have a messenger very simplistic in form, food. And even his preaching was very simple. He was a prophet like Elijah, not another priest. So the first affirmation as we begin to open this up, Mark's saying, here we go. Here is what I want you to understand. This is the gospel, the good news, by the way. Gospel just simply means the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He was the Son of God because, first of all, there was a messenger who came out as a herald to declare, make way, here comes the King, He is greater than me. But the second thing that I find fascinating as we begin to get the affirmation of this establishment of Jesus as the Messiah is you have a message, a message of endorsement, and when you look at John the Baptist, you see his ministry. He was baptizing people for what? For repentance. So the way it worked was he went out and he said to the people, um, we are living in darkness. There is great sin in our lives. You need to repent and be baptized because it was a symbol of your repentance, that you would acknowledge that what you are doing is wrong and you need to change directions. And so Jesus comes out there, and it always bothered me as a child when I began to think through this. Jesus comes out to John, who is baptizing people for repentance, and he says, you need to baptize me. Why does Jesus, and we can read from the other gospel accounts, that John says, no, 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 no. I should be baptized by you. You don't need to be baptized. 
And Jesus says, no, 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 it needs to be done. Do it in order to fulfill all righteousness. So what is the principle going on here? If John's baptizing for repentance and Jesus has no sin in his life, why does Jesus need to be baptized? I think we get hung up on this word baptism a lot because we look at baptism and we categorize all of them in the Bible as the same. And they're not. There's actually seven different baptisms in the Bible. We're not going to spend time looking at all of them, but if we look at this and we, we look at it and we, we automatically think of John's baptism here, a baptism for repentance, and Jesus certainly didn't need it. It's not a what we would call, what we do when we baptize someone, we call it believer's baptism, where we are going to identify ourselves with Jesus Christ and publicly declare that what Jesus did, we believe and we hold fast to as our only hope. But what this is, is Jesus' baptism, a baptism of identification. See, in the original language, there are uh, a word, Greek word for baptism is baptizo, and, and oftentimes it had two different meanings, often used in ancient Greek writings. It meant to change the nature of something. So, for example, when a blacksmith is heating up his sword, he then flattens it with the, eye, or the hammer, he bangs it down, and then what does he do? He dips it in the water. Why? So that it hardens it. It changes the very nature from malleable when it's hot to cool it off and it becomes hardened because of that baptism. But there's another type of baptism, a baptism that doesn't change the nature, but it changes the identity of something to its purpose. And so in the ancient Greek world, in Homer's Odyssey, it talks about the, the Greeks taking their spears and baptizing them in blood so that they are no longer hunting spears, but spears identified for war. When Jesus came, he is, he is brought to the Jordan River and he is going to be baptized as an identification that he is the Messiah, Son of God, proclaimer of truth. And so what an amazing thing, and in case you don't necessarily find that evidence, you can look at the next couple of verses and find how it is clarified that as soon as he is baptized and he comes up out of the water, what happens? And the endorsement from heaven. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove, which is a very symbolic thing of the anointing oil of a king coming into his kingdom. So when we start to think through Mark, Mark wants us to understand, you say, why did Mark start here? Why is this gospel account here instead of with the birth of Jesus? Because Mark wanted the Roman world that is reading this to understand that here comes the Messiah, the King of Kings. He is King because he had a herald that came forth and proclaimed that here is the King. And then he was baptized as, as an identification of the Messiah, and God Himself through heaven declared, this is my Son, and He is anointed with the Holy Spirit for this ministry. And then it goes on and it says, here's that famous that word you're going to read over and over again. It says, the Spirit immediately drove Him out into the wilderness. And He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. We don't have time to dive into some of these things, but there are some amazing things to think about. 
It's, the idea is that it forced him out. It pushed him out into the wilderness. And there he was with the wild animals, but they weren't wild to Jesus, the Creator. And he was tempted. And how was he tempted? Well, we can read through uh, Luke's account, and, and, and it's amazing that Mark doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about it because he has a purpose in it. And it says that the angels were ministering to him. And then after John was arrested, that's a whole year, by the way, later, after John was arrested, he came back and his ministry begins. And what is his ministry? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The third confirmation is a ministry. He begins his ministry and the message, the kingdom of God is at hand. From Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, to Malachi chapter 4, there is a lifelong struggle of when the time would come. When the time would come. When is the redemption coming that mankind had fallen in, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, a curse was brought on all of mankind, and there was, there was an unrelentingness of sin that captured the hearts of mankind, that in iniquity and in sin, men and women were born. And there was no escape from it, that they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden at the, at the, the, with the curse of sin, and that death would reign, and that they could not have victory over it no matter what sacrifice they did. In Hebrews, it talks about offering sacrifice after sacrifice only being an annual reminder of sin. And so from Genesis 3 to Malachi 4, we, we have this lifelong struggle. And Mark says, here's the good news. The king has come. The king has come. And Jesus finally, after being anointed and announced as king, he says, the kingdom of hand, the kingdom of God is at hand right now. The hour has finally come. That should get us excited about looking at this book. That the kingdom is here. That hundreds of years of death and destruction can finally come to an end in reigning find it interesting that as Jesus is sent out into the wilderness, you have the picture, the wilderness, the picture of sin and death, a place of no life. And when Jesus is brought back from that, he says, no, the kingdom of God is now here. And so Mark's going to lay it out for us that this is the king, and he has come with an incredible thing, that the king would leave his throne and come to mankind to redeem them. And so the book is all about this, the deeds of Jesus and the sacrifice that He would make and what good news it is. So how do we take this introduction and make it applicable? Ministry in life should be about one thing. Announcing the King. No matter where you're at, it's so tempting to think that the most important thing in life is me. I do it all the time. I could tell you story after story of how selfish I am. It's really easy. It's, it's a long book. 
And it's tempting to walk around in, 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 in life and, and think about how we've been slighted or how we've been wronged and, and, and feel sorry for ourselves and, 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 and think about me, me, me. But our one purpose in life is to make straight the paths for the King. Our one purpose in life is to announce that He has come and that He offers the greatest gift of all Himself as a sacrifice. And when we think about the gospel being good news, our hearts should percolate at that, right? Because we think of it and we think of what it means for us that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, as Paul says, of whom I am chief. And this is a trustworthy thing. And so Paul has declared it for us. And, and we talked about it a, a couple of weeks ago. That it is a trustworthy thing that we ought to be putting before ourselves constantly. That when the goodness and the loving kindness of God appeared, he saved us. And so Mark says, here's the good news. And, and it's amazing to me that... Mark wrote this first before Matthew and Luke and John and, and how they probably all looked at it and said, wow, it's so true. And the challenge I would have then is, can we make our ministry in 2019 not about what we accomplish, but about announcing Jesus in a very practical way to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our friends and family, Think of uh, Scott and Kaylin talking about, you know, we have a privilege here in the United States where we're not going up to people and them looking at us baffled when you talk about God. You realize that every year we celebrate Christmas, the birth of Jesus. Every year it is proclaimed Christmas is here. And even people that don't believe in God celebrate Christmas. And we have the opportunity to pronounce and to announce to a world that the Messiah has come. So I want to close with this. As we think through that and, and announcing it, I want us to make sure that we start with an understanding of the gospel. You know, sometimes people look and say, well, I don't know how to announce the gospel. I don't know how to proclaim it. Well, Paul lays it out for us very clearly in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, here's the gospel, that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and he rose again, and then he appeared to many. He had to be king he had to be the Son of God. He had to be the Messiah. He came and he conquered sin and death. And it is no wonder that Paul or Mark would declare, here's the good news, the gospel. And Jesus, to begin his ministry, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's so important. It's essential. I'm excited to dive through this book to look at the deeds of Jesus and to then look at my own life and say, how do my deeds, how do the things that I do proclaim the coming King? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning that we can start to look into this book. And Father, I pray that as we look at the Gospel that we would just be reminded 
we'd be reminded of the truth that Jesus Christ came. That even though he was king, seated upon a throne, he left it all behind to come as a helpless babe, born into humble circumstances, subjecting himself. He lived a perfect and holy life, and he died on a cross to take the penalty for my sins. And Father, I pray that we would be reminded of the truth of the gospel, that it is grace that Jesus Christ offers freely to all who believe forgiveness of sins. So Father, I pray that if there's anyone in here today that does not know, that does not have their hope and their trust solely in that truth, that Jesus Christ came to live and die and He offers His righteousness as an atonement, as a a payment for the sins that we have done. That there is nothing in this life that we can say or do to earn that. But we can put our hope in a living Savior who truly was the Son of God, proclaimed by a herald, affirmed by the King Lord, I pray that they would put their hope and trust solely in the finished work of the cross and that it did not end there, that he was buried. He rose from the dead to declare victory over sin and death and to offer always, forever intercession for us. Lord, may we as your people announce that the coming King and be filled with the joy of that knowledge. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.